0: In today's podcast, we welcome Andrew Hyam, Chief Executive of Mission 2020, a global campaign that has been credited with quickening and deepening efforts to tackle climate change. In this lecture, Andrew seeks to answer the question, is it too late to mitigate our climate emergency, or is there still hope for a cleaner, greener planet? Andrew is a systems ecologist and political strategist who has served as a political advisor and worked for the United Nations and the Australian Conservation Foundation. For anyone with an interest in climate change, this is a grand challenge lecture not to be missed.
1: I'm going to start um, by telling you a little bit of a story about uh, Paris. That was a really magical moment. Um, I left Australia in 2007 pretty frustrated actually because I'd been working on climate policy for at least 10 years and I was told repeatedly um, that nothing was going to happen on climate in Australia unless there was a uh, legally binding agreement reached between all countries uh, that would apply equally to developed and developing countries. Um, I'd worked for some time as Jeff Gallup's uh, principal advisor um, trying to implement climate policy in Western Australia, and that was certainly the, the view that I was receiving from mining companies uh, and energy companies in Australia. That they simply weren't going to to let that happen unless their trading partners were also uh, were also uh, bound. And um, so, I decided that I better do something about that because. Otherwise, I would just be wasting my time. So I headed off to try to, to uh, work with, with others to get a, an agreement. Um, I joined uh, the, uh, the UNFCCC in the year leading up to Copenhagen and um, worked incredibly hard uh, in that year and uh, i don 't know if you remember, but uh, in Copenhagen, there was a complete collapse uh, of the negotiations. Um, it was so disastrously messy um, as a multilateral uh, negotiation you couldn 't really imagine a more disastrous uh, closure and we were really concerned at that time that we'd lost uh, we 'd lost it we 'd completely lost our ability to um, to reach an agreement. And in a way, I think uh, that we're at a similar point in time now. We are at a point, I think, where many are worried, uh, feeling quite desperate, um, almost on the brink of despair. Uh, are we actually going to be able to rescue this situation? I would venture to say that we will lurch from this euphoric moment and that feeling of despair repeatedly uh, over the next 30 years. And in fact, I think that the dynamics of the Paris Agreement are built around uh, this this pendulum. When I was on that podium, I was actually pretty worried um, because... If you go back to the basis for which uh, parties negotiated that agreement, there were two elements to the negotiation. The first was that, uh, yes, we would have a legally binding instrument that would apply to all national governments, and, and that would be agreed and would come into effect from 2020. But the least developed countries, the island states, the most vulnerable, uh, said, whoa, hang on, uh, Guys, that's not going to work for us because if you do, if you delay action until 2020, then uh, that's going to put us in jeopardy. Um, and so, what was agreed was two tracks. The first was a track which was about negotiating the treaty, and the second track was about bending the curve in global emissions by 2020. UNEP had for some time been reporting on the gap between where countries' pledges, where climate action uh, was tracking and uh, the uh, amount of emission reductions that would be needed to put us on a two-degree pathway. At that time, uh, we were looking at a two-degree pathway. If I th- when I was on the podium, I was thinking, well, this is great, but we have a long way to go, actually. We haven't delivered on that second part of the deal and interestingly um, Christiana had the same thought and that night we partied actually we had a really wonderful party the champagne was flowing the uh, uh, the French presidency was jubilant Um, but um, uh, when uh, we woke up in the morning she called me and said look uh, what are we going to do now uh, and that's the moment when we started talking about uh, creating this thing called Mission 2020, because our concern was that uh, the the heat would come out, that the momentum uh, would fall away uh, after Paris, and that uh, uh, we we needed to do something about uh, bending the curve in global emissions. Um, and that that would not happen uh, because now uh, the negotiations would continue, the fine-tuning uh, of the implementation of the Paris Agreement would happen, uh, but there would, a degree of complacency would settle in. So we, uh, in the first half of 2016, uh, ventured in a pretty uh, extensive consultation process with all of those uh, actors that were involved in in helping uh, for the Paris Agreement to be successfully adopted, asking the question, so what would it take uh, to get to a turning point in uh, 2020? And we were thinking of three things. Uh, Firstly, um, a point in time where emissions would be at a peaking point but ready to decarbonise rapidly. Um, Secondly, um, where there would be a political moment, how will we get to a political moment like Paris where national governments would uh, come good on, on what they said that they would do in Paris, which is to up their ambition in 2020. All national governments are obliged to come forward with greater ambition in 2020. And third... Make sure that the the real economy, the actors like the investors, the businesses, uh, and civil society was was prepared to drive the emission reductions into the second, uh, the next decade into the 2020s. And so, um, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story um, today about uh, Mission 2020 um, and how I think that we are on track uh, to to reaching those points we have actually got a long way to go. And as I think Fritz Charles has said uh, recently, what happens in the next 18 months is, uh, is really uh, the most important period of time. Unfortunately, it's also the most politically uh, difficult time to make these kind of changes, but it's, uh, but it's absolutely essential. So I wanted to start um, by talking about why a climate turning point by 2020 is necessary. And if you think about it, our planet has been swinging in and out of um, ice ages and warm periods over the last million years, but it's only been the last 12,000 years um, that we've entered into this unique equilibrium that's not too hot and not too cold, and it's perfect for human, um, for human life to flourish. There's a certain immersion that uh, we see with global warming which makes it hard for us to see what's coming. The atmosphere now exceeds 410 parts per million of CO2, heading up to 415. The last time atmospheric CO2 was at this level, temperatures were three to four degrees higher than they are today, and sea levels were 15 to 20 meters higher than they were today. Greenland was ice free, and trees grew on the boundary of Antarctica and we are still pumping uh, this stuff into the sky. Over the last hundred years or so uh, we've burned burned so much fossil fuels and destroyed so many of our natural areas that we have begun pushing earth out of this Goldilocks era by about one degree centigrade. It's no exaggeration to say that our house is on fire. If you understand the climate system This doesn't end well. And now this has become the present day crisis. Not just something for the future. The impacts uh, of climate are being felt everywhere. We often uh, read about... This issue in dollar terms, like the $320 billion that climate-related disasters cost the global economy in 2017, or the $91 billion they cost the US last year, or the $6 billion they cost Australia last year. But our only home, this planet and the ecosystems that support it, are orders of magnitude greater than billions of dollars. Humanity and nature is priceless, and we seem to have forgotten that. So here we are living on a planet that's one degree warmer than it was before the Industrial Revolution. Back in 2015, when Christiana and I were celebrating the achievement of the Paris Agreement, we were celebrating countries agreeing to strive to a 1.5 degree limit, but the first round of commitments from countries that were deposited in 2015 take us closer to three degrees of warming, unleashing irreversible tipping points and absolute devastation for our species. That's what a three degree world will deliver us. But as the warnings and evidence of danger mount, entrenched vested interests, continue to hold progress back. Millions of dollars are being spent on sophisticated lobbying, advertising and misinformation campaigns. Did you know that since the Paris Agreement was adopted, the 33 largest banks in the world have collectively provided $1.9 trillion into the fossil fuel economy? Well, the burning of fossil fuels is now considered the greatest threat to our children's health globally air pollution, it generates, uh, contributes to cancer, dementia, stroke, heart disease, all numbers of illnesses, um, killing millions of premature death every single year, now considered to be one of the largest threats to global health. And the associated greenhouse gas emissions have risen to record highs, they rose nearly 3% in 2018 alone. We are far from bending the curve in global emissions. But in dozens of places all around the world, the Extinction Rebellion has been engaging in historical civil disobedience. Their members, driven by a deep concern that our own species is at risk of extinction if we do not act as if this is a climate emergency. They have read the science, And they fear for all of our futures. The school strikers say we have stolen their futures. They say they don't want our hope. And I understand their outrage and their despair. I've been working on this issue since 1989, so this is 30 years that I've been working on this issue, and it's very confronting to have a bunch of uh, young kids tell you that you've completely failed. Um, These are very frightening times, but despair breeds paralysis and failure. And as Christiana has always said, impossible is not a fact, it's an attitude. And while we may encounter defeats, we must not let ourselves be defeated. We are being called to use our fiercest optimism as an input to this tremendous challenge on our watch. Today, we have a responsibility to choose the road less travelled. Today, we must fork away from business as usual to business as urgent together. This new road will deliver clean air, clean water, abundant renewable energy, better jobs, green industry, more livable cities and help safeguard our nature. Our journey towards the 2020 climate turning point and beyond leads to a desirable world, but we have no time to dither in our decision. We are emitting around 41 gigatons of CO2 per year. So I'm going to give you this as your 40 gigaton challenge. By 2020, we have to do two things. Firstly, we have to make sure that we do not exceed the boundaries of this piece of paper. We just can't afford to do that. Um, We've already got a large amount going into the atmosphere. And at the same time, we have to put everything in motion so that by 2030, one decade later, we actually have to halve this like this halve our emissions, get to 20 gigatons in 10 years. By 2040, we have uh, to halve again. We have to get down to 10 gigatons by 2040. And then by 2050, we have to halve it once more, get down to around 5 gigatons. And with the rest, well, actually, at the moment, we're not sure what to do with the rest... Um, technically speaking, uh, we assume that we'll be able to have this absorbed by natural processes, probably accelerated by some negative emissions. But at the moment, we can assume, let's assume that we can deal with that. And we've solved at least the climate problem for now, or have we? No, I don't think so. Then I think what we need to do is um, remember this uh, problem that we have, the inertia in the system, then we have to um, actually actively manage our climate system so that it uh, comes back into a Goldilocks era. That is the challenge of our generation and the generation to come. That is the drastic nature of the emission reductions that we have to take. This is not a linear exercise. It is exponential. But the good news is that we have uh, exponential capacity within the system, within the market, um, within society. We actually have exponential change happening right now. And that's something that I want to get to in some detail. Um, That means that we can direct all of our ingenuity, all of our technology into doing this because if we don't, The human pain, the human cost say nothing about nature is unacceptable. It's intolerable, it's irresponsible, it is um, so uh, horrible that we could never forgive ourselves for letting it happen. One of the lesser known known findings of the IPCC when it reported on 1.5 degrees in October last year is that we can actually limit and achieve uh, the 1.5 degree goal, but we need all hands on deck and we need to do it now. Fortunately, the positive changes we need to see are already happening every day. In fact, if you go to our website, which is www.mission2020.global, and you click on Momentum, there is a um, whole a uh, spreadsheet of uh, recording um, every time that we come across some uh, piece of evidence that shows us that these sort of exponential shifts are happening, we record it there. So I'd invite you to go and have a look at that because I can't cover all of them in, in this lecture. But I'm going to touch on a few. In March, the Norwegian government recommended a $7.5 billion divestment from oil and gas. The country is diversifying uh, because it sees oil and gas as a risky investment going into the future and it's pulling gradually its money out of oil and gas. This is a country that built its entire economy on oil and gas exports, a little bit like Australia I suppose. This year we've seen the overseas Chinese banking corporation, Southeast Asia's second largest lender and China's massive state development and investment corporation confirm that they will be ending financing of coal um, instead to focus on renewable energy technologies. In Japan, um, I was there only a few months ago, a number of uh, big Japanese conglomerates and banks are also pulling out of coal financing. And it's not just happening uh, in the east. Canada's uh, second largest pension fund has announced that it will uh, uh, invest uh, 50% by 2020 in the clean economy. Uh, that's $6.2 billion in new money flowing into uh, low carbon investments. In Europe, we see almost all of the major parts of the financial system uh, either divesting now or preparing to divest from coal and moving now onto oil and gas. And to speed the way, the London Stock Exchange recently did something very sneaky um, where it decided to reclassify all of its listed companies as either renewable or non-renewable. And they did that because the big pension funds are saying, well, we want to be able to pull our money out of uh, brown and put it into green. So that brings the count of uh, investors globally that are pulling out of coal to about 112. Um, many of the largest investors, including AXA and Allianz and others, um, we're seeing starting to see really significant flows of of money moving into low carbon. I'm going to tell you a story about um, some work that we've been doing with some of these big asset owners, particularly with so uh, maybe I shouldn't name them, but let's say um, uh, asset owners that are the largest in the world, total uh, assets under management, $2 trillion. We've been working with them because we want them to make an announcement at the Secretary-General's Summit uh, in September this year, and we want them to uh, set the new bar of ambition for investors globally. Um, What we want them to do is to commit uh, to... Portfolio-wide decarbonisation. These are investors that are called, uh, what you call universal investors. So they invest in everything. They have, uh, or they have um, money in everything. Uh, and we, we're we getting we're asking them to um, set a, a trajectory where they will end by 2050 with net zero emissions. And every five years uh, intervals from that period backwards to, to now, they will set targets on how they will decarbonise their portfolio. That's essentially, because they're universal investors, what they're taking on the challenge is decarbonising the entire economy. I'm only telling you this because I think there is some real bravery out there. Um, there are uh, individuals within uh, some of the largest uh, economic institutions that are really taking this emergency quite seriously. And so with these shifting of the trillions. Um, and the exponential price declines in renewable technology, um, it seems that there really is no future left in coal. Um, I'm not sure that's really uh, reached uh, the public consciousness here in Australia. Um, it, it basically means that the largest uh, source of export revenue for this country is no, is, has no future. It, you will have to transition out of coal entirely. And you will need to do that over the next 30 years. Uh, And that is a really, really major uh, policy technical uh, challenge. And one which this institute uh, is very well placed to help uh, usher through. Even in the US, state efforts uh, to prop up industry can't compete with the power of the real economy. A number of US coal-fired power plants will retire this year. Quite a large number, actually, increasing number every year are being retired. And what's really interesting is that new, relatively new uh, power stations are being retired. So power stations that you know, would normally uh, have a 40- or 50-year lifespan are, are closing after 10, 12, 15 years. That's actually a good sign because we need, uh, we need to see that happening uh, around the world. 170 companies globally have committed to shift their power purchases to 100% renewable energy. In fact, so many companies have made this Renewable Energy 100 commitment um, that it's brought a record amount of clean energy um, being purchased by corporations, double the amount from last year. Uh, So the pace at which corporates are taking up 100% renewable energy is really quite exponential. And it's fundamentally starting to change the structure of the energy market. Large batteries uh, that store and smooth out energy supplies are also becoming uh, economic, uh, economically faster, economical faster than expected. Um, in fact, the cost curves of battery storage, uh, as many of this, in this room would probably know, are Declining even more rapidly than we see in renewable energy technologies, including solar. And all of you would know about the success of the South Australian uh, Tesla battery. Um, it is already um, paid off one third of its upfront capital cost and uh, is already. Uh, performing very, very well. Norway, France, United Kingdom, Netherlands, and India, among many others, are, um, have set deadlines for uh, ending the fossil, f- uh, ending the um, uh, the internal combustion engine, and moving to fully electric vehicles. Uh, 60 cities around the world have done likewise, and we're seeing real momentum uh, in the uptake of of electric vehicles. So these are all good examples of change in the right direction. But the protests of the school strikers, um, they would probably say the opposite. They would probably say that um, they're all 30 years too late and um, none of this is happening fast enough. In fact, climate change does require us to hold two seemingly contradictory uh, truths in our minds simultaneously. The first is that we are making amazing progress in many realms and we can do a lot more. And um, we are not going nearly fast enough um, to avert disaster, but we can do a lot more. The next two years are absolutely critical as decisions made now will affect many future generations to come, I'll remind you of the inertia in the climate system again. We cannot commit to any new fossil fuel infrastructure that would lock in more emissions for decades and I'm really sorry but that does include Queensland. Um, This is no longer a question of substitution. Uh, It is something that uh, applies to all jurisdictions. The Secretary-General of the United Nations has made that very, very clear. Um, no new coal infrastructure from 2020, thank you. 2020 is also the political moment uh, when countries must come back to the table to increase their ambition and steer their commitments towards the 1.5 goal away from their current three degree pathway. And I really hope that Australia is able to come with more ambition. I'm not sure that that will be the case. It is a little incongruent when you think about uh, the difference between a 2 degree trajectory and a 1.5 degree trajectory for the Great Barrier Reef that the country is not able to up its ambition because essentially what you're doing in not upping your ambition is accepting the total uh, obliteration of uh, of the reef. But let's uh, have a look a little bit at uh, the world of exponentials um, because I think that is interesting. Uh, I want to move back into the positive a little bit. As a rule, um, humans are pretty comfortable with incremental thinking. Who doesn't love Aesop's fable, the hare and the tortoise? All of us know that... um, Slow and steady wins, right? Wrong. We are not in that kind of race anymore. We are in the race to save everything we hold dear, even our own species. We have to shift into exponential pathways of thinking and action. If I took 30 regular steps now, perhaps I would be able to shake hands with the people up at the back of the room. Probably I would get out into the foyer out the back there... But if I was to take 30 exponential steps, then I would reach the moon. No successful technology in history has ever been adopted on a linear basis. Look at Kodak, for example. It went from a market capitalization of 128 billion with 140,000 employees in 1996 to bankruptcy in 2012. In the same sort of six years, uh, Instagram had a market value of over 100 billion and over 1 billion users. The blockbuster to Netflix story follows a similar exponential uh, path of relative decline and success. Supercomputers, which used to take up enormous rooms—probably this room for a, su- a supercomputer, and even more now uh, in the, the palm of your hand. The cost of just one, probably just $100 for for what you would pay uh, exponential amounts in the past. Intel already has a new chip that puts a teraflop of processing power. I don't know what a teraflop is actually, but it's a lot. Puts it in your desktop computer. And think about the Tesla super battery in South Australia. It was built in less than 100 days. Compare that to the time it takes to build a coal-fired power station. Or a nuclear power station or a, or a coal mine, actually um, could take you ten years or more, maybe forever uh, in the u s last year, um, Florida Power and Light they completed a ten megawatt uh, battery, how as its uh, largest of its kind, and now they 've announced a forty uh, uh, a battery which will be forty times that size, so storage systems are now getting up to the scale of of coal-fired power stations in themselves. In the past decade, electric vehicles have gone from near zero to a million on the road in the US. In Norway five years ago, EVs represented 6% of all new car sales, and today they are uh, at uh, around 58% of new car sales. So exponential shifts. I heard one researcher explain to me that um, when they do projections uh, for batteries and EVs, every time they do a new forecast, they have to, it's already become obsolete by the time they do the forecast and they have to um, adjust it um, for increases in deployment and decreases in cost. So disruption is everywhere. Once a market reaches a tipping point, of penetration, boom, the transition happens at a fantastic speed. I'd like to argue that the world is reaching four key tipping points that give a strong strong indication that we can reach the 2020 climate turning point. The first of these um, I've already touched on a little, and that is the uh, civil society movement tipping point. Over 1.5 million young people have been school-striking for their futures, I think that number just continues to grow um, they 've helped make climate change a mainstream issue within their homes uh, and within many other uh, forums, more so than NGO community has been able to do over the last thirty years as a result, the whole gen- whole generation around the world have become new spokespeople for the Paris agreement and one point five degrees that 's a really significant shift The, ex- the extinction rebellion. Uh, has for- forced similar changes in the UK, other places around the world. We see a climate emergency being adopted, being declared in many jurisdictions. I think in April 2019, I was told that when that uh, Extinction Rebellion uh, week-long action that was being taken in London, that the number of mentions in the news uh, on climate reached uh, well beyond the um, the maximum that had been in the period around the Paris Agreement. So it's really um, biting uh, there as we move towards September, where on the 20th of September, there will be the next sort of major moment. And and at this point, uh, even the adults are being invited to join. Um, I think that this howl uh, of urgency will come even stronger. The second is the political moment tipping point. Um, Costa Rica has, uh, earlier this year, launched its new decarbonisation plan. It is a plan to fully decarbonise the Costa Rican economy. Um, it sets out in quite some detail the strategies and actions that the country will implement to get to that point. Um, and we are seeing uh, long-term strategies similar to Costa Rica's being developed now uh, and uh, being communicated to the United Nations. um, The Paris Agreement invited national governments to to develop strategies for net zero emissions. Um, And at at last count, I see about 50 countries uh, planning to to deliver theirs next year. In the US, the um, Green New Deal has completely changed the conversation around climate um, in in the Congress, changing uh, the conversation of what uh, is possible on policy and uh, and I'll come back to the risk uh, of 2020 in a second. Um, But it does seem possible now uh, that uh, a new lease of climate policy life will be injected there. And meanwhile, in almost every jurisdiction, we see um, Concern of citizens rising on climate, and that is driving um, the political change that we that we see. The third tipping point is in the real economy. I've already covered this fairly extensively, but the fact is that coal is in terminal decline globally, thanks to the exponential price shifts, the massive financial exodus that we see from fossil fuels um, within the finance sector and the exponential growth uh, in uh, renewables and the costs coming down for battery storage. Bill Clinton might have said, it's the real economy, stupid, because that is actually what will drive most of the change. Um, And uh, I would really, that's why for Mission 2020 we put 80% 80% of our energy into uh, working with investors and businesses uh, and actors in the real world because we think that is what actually drives national policy. And the fourth tipping point um, is what you might call the fourth industrial revolution. This includes artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, which can dramatically increase Energy efficiency, optimised grids, the Internet of Things, which can uh, improve um, the way in which energy systems function as a whole. The fact that companies operating this realm are radically collaborating as a part of the Step Up Coalition, I'd invite you to um, look that up. It's a very interesting uh alliance of some of the biggest and innovative technology companies around the world like Uber, Lyft, WeWork, but also some of the more mainstream companies like Salesforce who are working together to try and accelerate the rate of decarbonisation in other sectors of the economy as fast as possible using their uh, political, uh, economic and technological capabilities. Before I close... Um, I want to spend a few minutes sharing my assessment of where we are on the trajectory um, to securing greater national ambition um, because while working in the real economy is really important, I think it has to translate into national outcomes and that, we're at that point now. Um, the Secretary-General has invited... All uh, heads of state and government to come to a summit on the 23rd of September in New York, and he's invited them to come with uh, plans and not speeches, as he says, um, to increase their nationally determined contribution. Um, He has written to every um, major head of state and set out in quite some detail what his expectations are of the country in terms of their top line uh, targets for emission reductions, including. Uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Um, He is inviting, uh, for example, uh, the South Korean government, the Japanese government, the Chinese government, to end uh, their financing of coal. Uh, He is encouraging all national governments to adopt policies that would see uh, the phase-out of uh, the ending of, of new coal by 2020. We are starting to see uh, interest from all of the major economies in coming forward with uh, greater ambition. They need a push. China has already signalled that they would come with greater ambition. The EU recent election and the uh, appointment of the new uh, president of the the next European Commission uh, is uh, putting some uh, encouraging remarks about what Europe will do. Uh, India is way overachieved on its uh, Paris commitments. Uh, It can go a long way further than it it has, Uh, but we're yet to have signals from uh, the Modi government. The signals are all there that uh, governments can step up their ambition. Some of them are already moving in that direction. Uh, In parallel with that, the the Secretary-General and the UN system is... De- developing a whole range of uh, sectoral initiatives, uh, which will uh, accelerate uh, decarbonisation in different sectors. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, this will, I think, uh, still uh, add up to um, somewhat incremental change uh, by the time of September. Uh, and so, um, we really do need to see that trigger, um, not despair, um, but uh, the extra push that we need for um, countries to come forward with their greater ambition by December 2020. That's all that I wanted to say. Um, Thank you very much for um, hearing me out.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcast, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at www.qut.edu.au/slash IFE, and we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.